you're new with us, uh, we're in a four-week series called Your Kingdom Come. Uh, we're in week three, How Citizens of Heaven Live on Earth. Uh, so we invite you into that study if you haven't been with us, First Timothy uh, chapter 2. I know that uh, for many of us, we've been consumed with uh, uh, the election and the uh, events of our country. And while this passage does touch on uh, the need for us to be praying for all who are in leadership, it actually goes way beyond that and reminds us of the church's global mission. And uh, I'm excited to, to be thinking about this today, about how we as the church are to embrace the whole world in prayer and are to engage the whole world with the good news. And so uh, let's fix our minds on that tonight. Now, let me pray as we jump into the passage. Father, truly, we are grateful that you have given us life that we have been born anew through the living and abiding Word of God. We're grateful tonight that as we open the book, uh, we recognize it to be a different kind of book, that it is through the living and abiding Word that you make us sons and daughters of God. And we are grateful tonight for the privilege of studying it. Pray you transform us by it now, by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in uh, 2004, I had the privilege of going on a mission trip to the Olympics. And uh, the Olympics are a great time to uh, engage in conversation with people around the world as the whole world is there practically. I've always been uh, enamored by the parade of nations uh, that during that introduction of the Olympics, as all the nations come through, uh, it makes me think of Revelation 5 and that great scene where uh, people from every tribe, people, language, and nation are around the throne singing uh, praise to, to the Lamb. Uh, and so we were uh, trying to engage people in conversation through various sporting events and uh, kids' clinics and things that we were doing. And, and one day we had the bright idea we should do some beach reach. And so uh, we decided to go to the beach in Greece and see if we could engage some people in gospel conversation. Seemed like a good idea at the time, uh, but it took us a while to find the part of the beach that actually required clothing. Um, the first place we went was not the ideal setting for evangelism uh, when you had to keep your head down the whole time while you were trying to uh, talk to someone. And we eventually got to the beach where people were clothed, at least uh, to some degree, uh, and uh, these guys from Bangladesh kept coming up to us trying to sell us these little beach mats. And um, I, I told them we weren't interested a couple of times, and finally one of them came up and said, uh, again, he was trying to sell these beach mats for $5. I actually still have this mat at home uh, in the garage. And I said, listen, pal, I will give you $5 for your mat if you give me uh, five minutes to talk about Jesus. And he said, uh, $3. And I was like, does that mean you, uh, three minutes? Uh, we, were, we were already a breakdown in communication. And so uh, I decided to try to explain the gospel to him as best as I could using a couple objects, you know, to try to explain the mediator, the bridge between man and God, uh, namely Christ. And so the only objects I found in, uh, the, uh, on the beach at the time were, were a cigarette bud uh, and a, a, an empty water bottle. And so I tried to uh, symbolically say to him that you are like a cigarette bud. Uh, but what he got in, in turn was not, uh, you're like a cigarette bud. He, he, I, was, he's, I was suggesting that he, he wanted to smoke. And he kept saying, no, me no smoke, me no smoke. And I said, no, I'm not asking you to smoke. I'm, asking, I'm telling you that you're like this. And then I said, God is like the water bottle. And Jesus, the cross, is the mediator. And it, it was probably the most pathetic 
evangelism presentation uh, in the history of, of mankind. And so my, my witnessing partner, Alan, said, T-Bone, just give him a track and let's, let's go on to, uh, to the next person. I hope it did lodge something in his mind as, as uh, we gave him some material and a website to follow up on. Uh, and that illustration came to mind as I was reading this text today because this is a text that causes our attention to be focused on the whole world and at the same time causes our attention to be fixed on the one mediator that is the savior of the whole world. Most people allude to this passage primarily, I think, because it speaks to uh, the priority of of, uh, praying for those who are leaders. And originally that's why I selected this text. But the text actually goes way beyond that. It, It certainly includes the need for us to be praying for our leaders because America is in fact part of the world. But it goes beyond that. There's an amazing scope, a universal scope to this passage that I find uh, very exciting and very uh, compelling, invigorating. In fact, if you're looking at your Bible, notice the, the uh, repetition of all or all people or everyone in the text in verses one and two, our prayers are to be made for all people, right? In uh, verse, verse four, God's desire for the salvation of sinners concerns all people. Salvation is not just for one particular group, but it's for the nations. Christ's death, verse 6, concerns all people. He was a ransom for all. That is, he he came to save a people from every tribe and tongue and ransom them, as Revelation 5 says. And Paul's mission, and by extension our mission in verse 7, is for everyone, or as Paul says there, the Gentiles. And you should always be reminded that when you read of Gentiles in the New Testament, the word is, is usually ethne, where we get ethnicities from that the gospel is for all ethnicities. It's for the nations. Now, this is important uh, in in the letter of 1 Timothy because it seems that there were some uh, Jewish false teachers that were arguing that there was no real mission to the Gentiles. In chapter 1, verse 3, he begins to talk about those false teachers that are all tangled up in Jewish mythology and Jewish genealogies. And so they had good news perhaps for the Jews, but not for the whole world. They were all about their little tribe. But our God is not a tribal deity. He is not simply the God of America or of of England or France, but the God of the nations. And he desires the salvation of all types of people, all races, all nations, all classes. I love how Isaiah put it, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. And he is worthy of the worship of all types of people everywhere. So the passage has an inclusive nature to it. Everyone can be included in this this glorious uh, transformation in the gospel. But there's also an exclusive nature of this passage. The whole world is invited to the one way of salvation, to this one mediator, Jesus Christ. So you could say that Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive. That is, the whole world is invited to the one way and only one way of salvation in the Messiah. Now let's divide this text just in two parts tonight. First of all, embracing the world in prayer, and secondly, engaging the world with the good news. Okay? Embracing the world in prayer. First of all, Paul shows us here the priority of prayer when he begins to say, I urge you, first of all then, I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. 
This word urge is a strong word. It's how he began the book, chapter 1, verse 3, when he urges Timothy to uh, ensure that false doctrine is not being taught in Ephesus. So it's a way he begins a strong exhortation, like Romans 12, 1. I urge you then, right, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's urging the church to pray. And his mention here of first of all is not like he's starting a list, but rather a matter of first importance. This book, uh, 1 Timothy, many of you are very well aware of, is what we call a pastoral epistle, and it's a book about pastors and deacons and, and how to care for widows and how to order the church. It's very much about the, the life and organization of the church. But before Paul gets to all of those important subjects, he says, church, you should be people of prayer. First of all, first things first, let's be a praying community. Let's be a praying people. After talking about preaching the gospel and defending the gospel in chapter one, the very next subject is we must pray for everyone. So my friends, I must ask you the same question I've been asking myself all week. You guys just get it for 30 minutes. I'm, wearing, I'm, I'm w- w- dealing with this, this, this sermon every, every day. How is your prayer life? How, how are your prayer walks? How, how's, how is your prayer with the community of believers? Perhaps you would begin to, to think about ways that you could foster a, a more improved prayer practice. Maybe just praying your, through your neighborhood as you walk or praying with others in uh, the church. We're not there th- this week, but down in verse 8, I love how Paul gives a strong word to the guys when he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What kind of transformation would it be with, <laughs> with the men who stopped shaking their fist at each other and started holding up holy hands in prayer together? That's the priority of prayer. I've been deeply convicted by this text this week. Now, he moves from the priority of prayer to the variety of prayer. I only have one that rhymes, but I'm proud of that one. It's variety. Notice here how he explains the richness of the experience of prayer with these words, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. Now, I don't think it's necessary to, uh, to to, uh, you know, neatly try to define all of these and to, to ensure that, that we're spending ample time on each of them or whatever. I think it's just this basic idea that we are to offer all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. So sometimes we're interceding for people, people who need jobs, people who are sick. Sometimes we are giving thanks to God for people. What a, what a transformation it would be if we began to, to, to give God thanks regularly for the things that he has done and the things that he is doing. And we do all of this recognizing that God hears our prayers. God responds to our prayers. This is one of the things that separates our God from idols. Psalm 115 says the idols don't listen to you. They don't have ears. They don't have a mouth. They don't talk. Our God talks. Our God listens because he's the living God. And because he's the living God at work in the world, we beseech him. We, we make our supplication to him. We intercede on behalf of others. We ask God to save people. We ask God to heal people. Because he's the living God. That's the variety of prayer. Now notice thirdly here under this section on prayer, the objects of prayer. Who is it that we are praying for? Well, I've already mentioned that we are to pray for all people, as he says in verse 1. That is, people who are far away and people who are near. People that we've met and people we have not met. People who are our friends and people who are our enemies. We are praying for many things 
And a couple of things you see in this passage is the need to pray for peace and for the spread of the gospel. In fact, some people have called 1 Timothy chapter 2 evangelistic prayer. If you think about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, to get the gospel to all ethne, to all peoples, that's the Great Commission. You might call 1 Timothy 2 the Great Intercession, that this is the, the prayer aspect of our global mission, to pray for the entire world. We try to do that in our public gatherings as we pray for missionaries, as we pray for church plants around the world and so on. We should do this in our own private lives as well. I recall as a, as a, uh, my first year of pastoral ministry, many, many years ago now, that uh, I heard John Stott preach on this text. And it was a strong rebuke to those who do not include the world in their prayers and in their mission. Stott writes, although Paul uses this cluster of four words, they all focus on a single theme, namely that they should be made for everyone. This immediately rebukes the narrow parochialism of many churches' prayers. Some years ago, I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on holiday, and a lay elder led the, the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which was also fine. We should pray for the sick. But that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened. In, uh, sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There was no recitation of the needs of the world, no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. Church, we are not a village church with a village god. We are a global church with a global god. And the god who rules the world wants his people to embrace the world in prayer. And so let's pray for all people, all nations, all ethne. What a glorious vision that is. Now, when Paul says everyone, he means everyone. Noted by verse 2, including kings and all who are in high positions. You say, we don't really have kings, but we do have those in high positions. This is, we're praying for those in public office. Now, I can only imagine the first time this letter was read to this local church, how shocking and surprising this may have been to some in the congregation. I mean, they're tracking with Paul in chapter one. Hey, we're not tolerating false teaching. This is the purpose of the law. Jesus Christ came to get, uh, save sinners and everybody in the church is amening. Even in verse one that we should be praying and we should pray for everybody, amen to that. And then he gets to, and pray for Nero. Pray for pagan rulers. Yeah. Pray for those who might persecute us. Yeah. You think about it today, friends, there were no Christian rulers in the first century. And Paul says, include them in your prayers. And we do this as believers, knowing that God is the most high, the great king over all the earth, that he reigns, that he's over all. And we are to pray for global leaders, regardless of what we think of their policies, in view of God's sovereign rule over them. Now, I know this is very challenging. I've just been on social media a little bit this week. And people who've just cited 1 Kings 2, that we should pray for those who are existing political leaders and those who will be the newly elected leaders. And people, they respond so negatively to 1 Timothy 2. Like, 
it's plain as day, people. We are to pray for all leaders. That's our job, regardless of what we think of them. And I would say to those who don't like those who are newly elected leaders, you have even more reason to pray because prayer will change your heart toward them. Prayer can make you compassionate toward your, your enemies. I love how the church father Chrysostom put it. No one can feel hatred toward those for whom he prays. And so what do we pray? Well, we pray for things like we're going to see here in this text. We pray for peace. We pray for them to rule well. We pray for them to, to, to rule uh, justly. This is our job as the church. That gets us to the next part, to uh, the reasons for prayer. Three reasons you might note here. Number one, we pray for peace. We pray for piety, that is godliness, and we pray for proclamation. Clement's, uh, uh, Clement, uh, the early, another early church father of Rome, has this uh, wonderful prayer that he prayed for rulers that included health and peace and harmony. I won't read the whole extended prayer, but it really fits well with what 1 Timothy 2, 2 says here. Like, why are we praying for those in high positions? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Christians are to be peacemakers. We are not to be public agitators. And so we pray that we may have a peaceable life. We're to pray for peace. And you see here how in this passage you have the church and the state operating in particular ways. Again, to quote Stott, he says, thus church and state have reciprocal duties. The church to pray for the state and be its conscience. The state to protect the church so that it may be free to perform its duties. Each should acknowledge that the other has a divine origin and purpose. Each should help the other fulfill its God-given role. What is our role? It is to pray. It is to be a conscience. And we are to pray for peace in our society, to pray for liberty, right? To seek the welfare of our city, like Israel was to do when they were in Babylonian captivity. And we should pray tonight for those who are living in violent regions of the world where they don't have peace, where they're not experiencing this tonight. And he adds to that that we may not only live a peaceful and quiet life, but that we may live a godly and dignified life that we may have a context in which godliness may flourish. It's hard to practice spiritual disciplines and be about the business of godliness when there's anarchy, when there's violence, when it's just chaotic and crazy, right? There you're just trying to survive. You're just trying to live another day. But in a context of peace, then that's a great privilege. And we take that way for granted because we've had it for years in, in America. Like we have a context where you can go to school, you can go to, and learn, you can assemble publicly like there are no issues. And that's a wonderful gift and we should take advantage of it when we have it. And the third P here is proclamation. Part of the reason for peace is not just for godliness, but as the passage goes on to explain to us, it's that the gospel may go forward, that the gospel may be proclaimed in contexts where there is civil peace. <clears throat> This was very important in the first century. You've probably heard of the phrase, the Pax Romana before, the peace of Rome, where you could travel safely on these roads, these Roman roads, and that's how the gospel went uh, like wildfire across the Greco-Roman world. This context of peace allowed the gospel to spread. Now, as we look at the whole Bible, we also need to realize that sometimes the gospel spreads in persecution. It's not the only time the gospel spreads in peace. But here the passage's focus is on peace, that we should pray for a certain sense of liberty and freedom that we may be able to proclaim the gospel and people may be saved. 
That's why we pray for certain leaders. These are really good reminders for us, aren't they? Now notice finally here under prayer, the incentives for for prayer, verses three and four. He gives us two motivations. Why Why pray toward these ends? Number one, he says, it is good and pleasing to God. And it's hard to imagine a better motivation than this, right? God takes pleasure in your prayers. God delights in the prayers of his people. It is a wonderful aroma. It's like a barbecue out of a smoker. It's just glorious, right? And if you're smoking meat, you know how the smoke just gets on you and you, you take on the aroma of the smoker. That too is glorious, right? Especially if you've got a hairy chest. I mean, it's just it's like, it's, it's the glorious smoker. And when we're in prayer, it's like we, we are transformed in God's presence. It's pleasing to God and it transforms us. That's why it's good. It's good, church, that we spend time in prayer and that we pray global prayers for the spread of the gospel and we pray for our leaders. God takes pleasure in that. You know, Eric Little in Chariots of Fire, when I run, I feel his pleasure. We could say, when we pray, we feel his pleasure. So it is good and pleasing to God. Number two, incentive number two, we pray for all people. We pray for the spread of the gospel because God desires the salvation of all kinds of people. This is God's great invitation to the world. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Come to the knowledge of the truth is another way of describing what happens when you become a Christian. You come to the knowledge of the truth about Jesus, that he came to save a people from their sins. Our God and Savior desires for all kinds of people to be saved. Again, this was in great contrast to the false teachers in Ephesus. This was radically different than the pagan Gnostics who thought they were this little elite group that had special knowledge and everyone else was on the outside. But the gospel is not for a particular group, a particular race, or a particular class, but for the whole world. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the category. Are you in that category? Then you're a great candidate to be saved. You're a great candidate to receive God's grace. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. We're not universalists. Nor does it mean that God somehow has his plans thwarted. We know he's accomplishing all things according to the counsel of his will. There's great mystery here in how this relates to, say, the doctrine of election. But what we need to see here, I think, is that this statement simply expresses the nature of God's love. That God is benevolent and kind toward all humanity. And he offers the world salvation. So let's embrace the world in prayer. And when we do, we are aligning ourselves with the very heart of God. Let our desires be like his desires to see all people saved. In some ways, we could say that the spread of the gospel is dependent on the prayers of God's people. And so let's be about the business of praying to have this global concern. So that's engaging the world in prayer. Secondly, engaging the world with the good news. Now, when you get to verse 5, there's one God and there's one mediator. There's one way of salvation. A lot of people stumble over this when they're considering Christianity. They don't like what's called the exclusivity of the gospel that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. But what we need to be reminded of tonight is the fact that we should be thankful that there actually is a way of salvation. 
right? Right? That we, we, he, he has not left us in our sins, but he's provided a mediator, a great, a great bridge between a sinful humanity and our holy God. So he says in verse 5, there is one God. This is a basic confession of our faith. There's not a God for one group of people and another God for another group of people. There's one God. There's not a God who created part of this and he created part of this and he's over maybe the sun, he's maybe over the, uh, you know, the, the animals or whatever. No, there's one God who created all. He is the living God. He's the triune God. There's one God and there's one mediator, he says. Again, this was very different than what the false teachers were teaching in Ephesus. Many of them, the Gnostics especially, were teaching that there are various uh, intermediaries between uh, man and God. And so you couldn't get directly to God, but you might have some other kind of mediator. No, Jesus is the one who has bridged the great divide. The one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. This speaks of Jesus' unique identity and his unique work. What makes him a mediator is that he's fully God and fully man. And the reason we believe in the exclusivity of the gospel is that there is only one in the God-man category. There is only one like Jesus Christ. Job's ancient cry in Job 9.33 was this, I wish there was a mediator that he might lay his hand on us both. And that ancient cry has been heard in Jesus Christ. He has laid his hands on both. And he's brought reconciliation between us and our God, and he's given us access to God. He's given us peace with God. And how has he accomplished this work? He says, he gave himself as a ransom. This access is a free gift of God, but it is not cheap. It came at the price of Christ's own blood. The bridge was built with blood that got us to our God. And he gave himself. Notice the sovereignty of this death. His life was not taken, as he says in John 10, but he laid it down. Jesus Christ was not a pathetic victim, right, of injustice. Rather, he voluntarily, sovereignly laid down his own life. He gave himself for us, church. He gave himself for us. It was a sovereign death. And what did he do in this giving of himself? He ransomed us. This uh, refers to the price paid to rescue or release a prisoner. We were imprisoned. We were in need of rescue. And Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, has ransomed us. He's given us freedom. I can't wait to start singing Christmas songs. How many of you already put your up your Christmas tree? Um, some of you, I bet, yeah. Um, somehow I think if you put up the tree, like COVID will be over. But... Uh, <laughs> I wish it were that simple. But we, one of the songs we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And he's come. He's ransomed us. He's freed us. And the good news today is not only that Jesus Christ has done something for us in our past, in the past, to bridge the chasm, but right now, in this moment, he's our mediator. In this moment, he's interceding for us. We have access to the Father in this moment because of his mediatorial work. And this was all given in a timely fashion, he says, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That is, he revealed God's purposes for humanity at the right time. As Romans says it, 
at, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or as Galatians 4 puts it, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, there's one God, there's one mediator. Finally, there's one great implication. If there is only one God and there's only one way to God, then the obvious implication is we need to be about the work of world mission. And that's verse 7. God's desire for everyone and Christ's death, which concerns everyone, naturally leads to the church's mission to be for everyone. It's the obvious implication here. If there's only one way of salvation, then we want the whole world to hear it. Now, this is a great reminder for us. Verse 7, as Paul begins to think through, we're getting the gospel to the Gentiles. Because as I said earlier, I don't know about you guys. I can't speak for everyone. I don't know what you did this week. You may have not turned the news on one bit. You're probably more holy tonight than, than, uh, than others of us. But it is very easy in these days to be so preoccupied with America that we lose sight of the lostness of the world. And I don't in any way mean to suggest that we should not be concerned about the needs of America. We should be. We should be praying for leaders and so on. But friends, leaders come and go. Jesus Christ is king forever. And our mission endures until we see Jesus Christ. So even good things can become distractions to our global mission. And that's why I love this text. We cannot be like Jonah, who was so myopic and so ethnocentric that he did not want to get the gospel to the Ninevites. God said, go to the most vicious people on the planet, the Assyrians. And he said, no, I'm not interested. I would rather spend tons of money and tons of time running from that mission rather than doing it. And he eventually gets to Nineveh. You know the story. God says to Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? And he does. They repent. And Jonah gets mad because the Lord saved many of his enemies. Listen, it's possible to have a lot of knowledge of the Bible, to perhaps even have a PhD in theology, but to not graduate kindergarten when it comes to God's heart for the world. Jonah had no problem with theology. He knew who God was. What he didn't have was God's heart for the world. And Paul here exemplifies both, right? A clarity on the gospel and a heart for the world when he says, this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I love how Paul puts that in parentheses. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. There are probably, as other books show, he, they're questioning Paul's credentials. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You can read through that quickly, but you have to remember, again, who this is that's writing this. This, this Jew from Tarsus who wanted to kill Christians. And Paul, when he's called on the Damascus, Damascus Road, is told that he's going to be a light to the Gentiles, to the ethne. He, he, and God gives him this heart. He's an apostle. He's sent. He's a herald. He announces the good news. He's a teacher, discipling people. And this is what we're sent out into the world to do. This speaks to our mission. 
And so friends, this can be so simple. I was encouraged a couple of weeks ago when Zach gave me a report from the uh, gospel conversations that uh, we did a bit of training on that for a couple of weeks. And uh, after a couple of hours of training, they sent out uh, folks into different neighborhoods here in, in North Raleigh. And Zach tells me that they encountered about 30 people just walking through neighborhoods and simply did what he called neighborhood check-ins, just asking people how they're doing in these times. And that 20 people were prayed for, uh, six they're going to have follow-up conversations with. The whole thing lasted an hour. An hour of walking around the neighborhood and asking people how they're doing. Can open worlds of, of doors. This is what we've been sent into the world to give people the good news, to commend to them the gospel. We're to engage the nations, and many of the nations are right next door. In faith and truth, this speaks to our fidelity to the message. Be faithful to preserve the truth of the gospel and be faithful to commend the gospel. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. Giving people time to repent and believe. I didn't read this quote this morning because it was really hot outside and I didn't have a, something to wipe my head off with. But this is a, a statement from the old Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, about your neighbors. And I need, I need to read it at least once today. He says, let your heart yearn for your neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting, ready to seize on them, and if they die unregenerate, they will be lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? Do you not care who is damned as long as you are saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves, for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. Do you live close by them, or do you meet them in the streets, or work with them, or travel with them, or sit and talk with them and say nothing to them of their souls? If their houses were on fire, you would run and help them. Will you not help them when their souls are almost lost at the fire of hell? That's the heart of Jesus who looks on the multitude and has compassion when he says they're like sheep without a shepherd as he weeps over Jerusalem. He tells his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Church, let's, let's pray for a harvest and let's be laborers in this harvest field filled with hearts of compassion like Jesus Christ. And as we go with, with compassion, we also go with confidence, knowing that Jesus Christ will have a people for himself from every tribe, people, language, and nation. As Revelation 5 says, they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign forever. We're part of that story. We get to be part of what God is doing around the world as his ambassadors on earth. And one day the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And there will be a parade of nations unlike anything we've ever seen in the Olympics. 
that which no man can number. And they will dwell there with the Lamb who will be their light. And he will reign forever. Now that's how we live on earth in light of this glorious vision. We're about the business of em embracing the world in prayer and engaging the world with the good news. May God grant us grace to be faithful to those tasks. Amen. Father, we pray that you would give us your heart for the world. You would give us hearts that just long to see our neighbors come to the knowledge of the truth. That we would get, have hearts that say with the psalmist, let the peoples praise you. May all the peoples praise you. For Lord, you are worthy of the worship of all people. Use us as a church. We don't want to be a little village church with a little village God, but a global church with a global God. We pray, Father, that even in these crazy times in which we're living, you would use us to lead people to salvation in Jesus Christ. Give us opportunities, give us boldness, give us compassion, give us what we need. And we as your people tonight give you thanks. As this text urges us to give prayers of thanks. We're thankful for one another tonight. We're thankful that we're part of the body of Christ. I pray you would use us to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.